All right. Hey, we are in our second week of our Q&A series where basically you sent, well, basically you sent me questions. Uh, I took some time, processed those, and then this morning I'm going to answer all of those. And I want you to know, like last week I got to, got to two, I had like six. This morning I have nine questions answered, and it's 1038. So we'll see how it goes, right? I was hoping we could start a little bit earlier, but it's okay this morning. We're going to dive into as many of these as we possibly can. Just a heads up, those of you asked questions, Questions about hearing God's voice, the prophetic, the gift of discernment. These are all kind of in the same bucket of just being a people who hear God's voice. We're going to talk about that starting in June. And so we'll do a series going on. So I will not be answering those in our Q&A series. But, yeah, I'm excited about that. It'll be fun. Uh, the first question is about vintage. And this is like, let me say this again as we dive in. Uh, so Q&A around theological issues historically usually divide rather than unite. Right. And I don't know if you know this or not, but there are thousands upon thousands of questions out there that are wrestled through every single day by theologians and seminarians. In fact, when I sat in my seminary, when I had, I don't know, 30 or 40 professors during my day, it was hilarious because I would go from one class and they would say something. I go to the next class, they say the exact opposite. And these are guys who gave their life to studying these things. And they were all best friends. And I thought to myself, if they can be best friends with some theological differences, Differences on issues, in my opinion, that aren't super clear, black and white, although you may see them that way as we're part of our tension lies, then may, may, I mean, we can live that same way as long as we agree upon what we said last week. What's the least a person can believe and still be a Christian? What's the least a person can believe and still be a Christian? Those are kind of our non-negotiable, foundational, rock-solid pieces that we stand on. And beyond that, to be honest with you, until we get to heaven, we are not going to fully understand and know everything. The person who says they do, they don't, right? And so with that this morning, I'm going to do some Q&A time around these. Almost every single one of these uh, questions I'm going to ask has some polar opposite side uh, viewpoints. And so I'm going to name those a couple. Of them actually give you my opinion on, and I will tell you up front, I could be wrong. Everybody say, I could be wrong. Thank you for agreeing that you're in the same boat as I am, all right? So, all of us could be wrong, so some of these things I'm going to answer. Here's what I would say to you as we dive in let's all be like the mature people, the older people in the story of the woman caught in adultery. Remember, Jesus says, he who was without sin, you cast this first stone. And it says the older people put their stones down the quickest because they knew their story and they knew their life and recognized in their maturity, hey, we recognize we all have things that we wrestle with. And so this morning I invite you, in fact, I implore and ask you just to go ahead and put your stones down and then brush them away. All right, kick them away, and let's just say this as we go through some of the things this morning, that we begin to say, all right, I have my opinions, Steve has his opinions, we agree on the primary things, and we can have conversation around it. And so with that, I'm going to start maybe with actually one of the most, um, probably the most polarizing questions of the morning, right? One of the most polarizing questions of the morning, at least in certain church circles, and the question revolves around, what is Vintage's view of women in full-time ministry, what is Vintage's view of, of women in full-time ministry? The second part of the question the person asks is, would we allow a woman to preach on Sunday morning? Isn't it fascinating? We literally have people who have walked in our doors, saw one up here giving announcements, a.k.a. Randall Hambrick, giving announcements and praying, and get up and walk out incredibly offended, right? 
And so we have this experience at Vintage. So what is Vintage's role? So I'll begin with the question, and I'll begin actually with a story to kind of illustrate this, that I think I want to paint where all of us need to be in these Q&A moments. Sit with two pastors who were considering their church being a part of our network of churches, our transformation network, our group of, of churches who are united, the nine of us across you know, this northwest Georgia corridor that we're in deep relationship with. We planted out of Riverstone Church down off of Stylesboro, right there at 41, excuse me, right there at um, Barrett, thank you, Barrett Parkway, thank you. Uh, and, and so I'm in this conversation. We're actually at Daily Grind. A lot of you have been there. We're in the, we're in the conference room, which allows people to get loud and obnoxious. And so we're having conversations and all of a sudden this guy looks at me across the table and slams his hand down. Just know he's much younger than me, by the way, at the time. Slams and puts his hand down, leans across, but he's also a lot bigger than me, right? And he leans across and says this. This is not going to mean much to some of you, but he says, if you're not complementarian in your view of women, in ministry that I believe that you are not biblical and we will not be in relationship with you. Now, you've got to recognize in the view of women in ministry, there are two primary biblical views. It's important, biblical views. 50% of the church across the world believes one. 50% of the church in the, in the world believe the other. And you're friends with all sorts of those people in those churches. Complementarian basically says this. But they both agree on this. This is where they agree. God has created male and female equal in their personhood. Right? That's where we land in agreement. He's made them equal in their personhood, both being created in the image of God. Is anyone starting to sweat because we're talking about this? I'm not. And so, in this moment, right, there's these two pieces. They both agree in who what male and female are as being made in the, per- in the image of God. It's beautiful. But complementarians say, but they each have their own unique roles. And the role of male is to lead in the church, to be the leader in, I'm not quite there yet, not quite there yet. There's a leader in the home, right? And they lead in business settings. And women have their own unique roles, which is in the parenting, the mothering, right? And then submitting to their husbands. Egalitarian view, egalitarian is the other one. Egalitarian just basically means, hey, we believe again that male and female have been created equal by God in all places, both in their roles in, in the church, both they each have their unique, but they're, but they're equal roles in the family as it relates to leadership and so you lead based off of how you're gifted and where you're talented in right and so the idea and so he's looking at me having this conversation and so he just proudly like boom slammed his hand down i looked at him and i just kind of i just and the other guy the other pastor's like uh, uh, like this whole moment right and so i i was like this is a great moment so i just lean back and just, oh. i said man it really sounds like you've taken a lot of time studying the complementarian view of women, both specifically in the church, but also in the home. Yes, I have taken a lot of time, and I recognize this, this God's biblical answer. I said, fantastic. How much time have you given to studying the egalitarian view of women in ministry? Well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you are so dead set on this complementarian view that I assume that you've actually taken enough time to study thoroughly the egalitarian biblical view of women in ministry, because to be honest with you, it's not very mature to take a stance against something if you have no idea what they believe. 
And I'm like, he's kind of looked at me. I said, so tell me how much time you've taken to study the other 50, because other, other 50% of people who you're going to spend eternity with in heaven and worship Jesus together, you're telling me you're willing to separate with them this side of heaven because they're wrong and you're right based on something you've never even looked at or studied deeply. And again, I'm not saying I won, but I kind of did. Right? <laughs> no, I'm just playing. So, but it was a powerful one because I, I love the guy. I wasn't trying to be combative. Like, I was literally trying to invite him into back into relationship, right? And he just kind of looked at me and said, well, I haven't really studied it at all. And I think that's the point, right? When we get into these highly debatable topics and these issues, sometimes we're so against something Never really actually having given our time to recognizing 50% of the church. So when you think about complementarian, what we're talking about predominantly is like the Roman Catholic Church has a view of this. Uh, a lot of the Southern Baptists, which is the primary culture that we live in here. Uh, most of your Reformed churches, so Presbyterian or in our, in our culture today, the Acts 29, which is the neo-Reformed Calvinistic predestination movement. On the egalitarian side, it's going to be your Wesleyan, your Methodist. You're going to have almost all of the denominations around around the charismatic churches, so Assemblies of God, Church of God, the Church of Nazarene, all the way down the line, right? Then you have all your independent churches that kind of have their own unique stance. And so so in this complementarian view, now you can put it on the screen for me, Joshi, the complementarian view holds that men and women have separate though equal roles in marriage, family life, and the church. Generally, believe only men should hold church leadership, leadership positions over other men, excluding them from preaching. Uh, women can't ex- they're excluded from preaching, being elders, leaders in the church, anything where they have leadership over men. They have a patriarchal view of the family where men are the head of the family unit, that women should submit to men in all things. The primary scriptures, I'm not going to read these this morning, but I encourage you, these are all familiar to you. Ephesians 5, 22 and 23 through 23, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, where a woman should learn in quietness. Uh, Titus 2, 3 through 5, which is talking about women ministering to women and men to men. And again, these are primary verses along with others, right? The egalitarian view holds the belief that, yes, both in female, male and female are equal in personhood. They believe men and women are equal in their abilities to hold roles in all the contexts of home, church, and in the work world. They believe Jesus abolished gender-specific roles as well as roles related to class and race. That's the Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female for all. Now we're just one in Christ Jesus. They believe uh, men and women can hold both uh, church leadership positions that that spouses are then equally responsible in the home based off of of, uh, of giftings and skill sets. What do I mean by that? Well, I grew up in a home. My dad said the man has to do the checking account because that's their patriarchal male role. I looked at it and said. Oh my gosh, then we're in serious trouble, right? Because if I'm supposed to lead in every single area, and I know I'm not an expert, and like I get it down to maybe a hundred dollars in my checking account back in the day, we had to bounce a checkbook. Randall will get it down to the penny, right? I'm like, oh my gosh, and I'm not a good male. I'm not, I'm feeling a little, oh no, I should just let her lead that type of thing mentality, right? And so kind of place that into these areas. They also so in the in the scriptures that they name are Romans sixteen one through seven, Colossians four fifteen. Second John 1, 1, Acts 16, 13 through 15. The fascinating thing about all of these scriptures is either you have a female deacon who's named, 
You have female elder that's named. The elder represents a pastor over that local church. And the other two literally name women as leaders over the house church in that region. So Paul and John weren't talking to women, men as the leaders. They were actually writing to the women who were the leaders. So that's why they say, hey, there's something here we need to recognize and understand of difference. And, of course, as they relate to marriage, it's defined in their minds. Rather than just submissive male to female, they believe in mutual submission, which is Galatians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, submit one to another, husbands to wives, uh, slaves to owners, children to parents. Okay, so this idea of just a mutual submission. Submission in the context of all of this. So, so here's the deal. I'm going to answer the question of where I land this morning. And some of you, I'm asking you right now, just to put your stones down. If you haven't done it, if you haven't deeply studied egalitarianism, then don't throw stones at me this morning, okay? Because I kind of I land much more in this camp, and the reason for me has nothing to do with what I've read to you. The actual reason I land here is because of Genesis chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three. When you look at how humanity was defined with intent, how God designed them to function, you don't look in the New Testament. You look at Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 because that's the picture of perfection. It was the picture of intent of what God ultimately intended for humanity. And it's interesting, in my understanding of Hebrew, then it, talks, it says God, God created man. It wasn't good for man to be alone, so God reached into man and pulled out the God traits of man and created woman. So man and from man. That's all all man and and woman mean is man and from man. And my understanding is that it was not a suitable helper. My understanding of the Hebrew of the word helpers, I've studied it, and there are people who disagree on this. But my understanding and reading of it is it actually represents a person who is equal in all ways. They were all functioning together, God traits and God traits, man and from man, working in unison. It's actually interesting. It's not until Genesis chapter 3, I think, verse 16, where we are told, not on the screen, that's what we're told for the very first time, is the husband will rule over the wife because of a result of sin. So it was only because of humanity's sin that then female came under the man. Up until that point, it was not the case. So I look at that and go, okay, well, if I believe in the nature of the kingdom being returned, God reestablishing things on the cross and putting things back how they want, how he wanted them to be in the return of his kingdom, then I believe that actually plays out as it relates to male and female and their roles together in leading and co-leading in the church. I'm not a feminist because I'm not saying females should be over males. I think there's this beautiful piece of submitting one to another, loving one another, and working together hand in hand, right, as we all do together. I think we see that being played out. So again, God's trying to redeem this thing, put it back to where he wanted it to be in the nature of the fall. And here's how I'll see that being played out. You see Jesus allowing for there to be scandalous to have female disciples. That's why you have Jesus allowing Mary to sit at his feet and say, Martha, Martha, you're worried about so many things. Do what Mary's doing. And everyone's going, she shouldn't even be there. It's scandalous. A woman should never sit at the feet of a rabbi. And Jesus says, I'm changing things. I love how we see in Scripture Paul actually giving value and naming women as valuable. Why? Because in Roman culture, which they were growing up in, and in Jewish culture, females were given zero rights. Given zero rights. And then Paul comes and says, no, they have rights, guys. you got to take them into account. They are equal to you. Submit, mutual submission, which is the 521. 
It's powerful. I love, even the last couple of years, one of the, the newest movements in the reform movement is the Acts 29 church planting movement. Fascinating. A little less than two years ago, I'm talking to my buddy about it, and he said he's an Acts 29 pastor. He goes, Steve, you know, and I love this. I think it speaks to this transition. He goes, we got all of the pastors nationally together, and we repented for the way that we had treated women, the calling upon their life, and the way that God had empowered them. And we had a woman speak and take, basically take the stage and preach to every single Acts 29 pastor in America who was there. That was powerful to me, speaking to the nature of redemption. So that's where I land. Again, I know some people leave churches over this issue. That's where I land. So I'd be, would I be comfortable inviting women to speak? Absolutely. I've asked Randall for five years. She's like, no, I'm not going to do it, right? And so that's where I land. I'm happy to have that. I believe it's okay. I recognize some of you have very clear reasons and tensions around the verses that I read. And again, we could sit down and talk through those sometime. But again, I invite you to study all of those. Okay, here we go. Next question. Uh, next question. Let's see here. Da, 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 da. Next question. Answer. Okay. If uh, this is another one of those theological questions, if the account of Adam and Eve uh, is uh, yeah, so what about the creation story? But the question was asked is if the account you can go ahead, but yeah. So the question was was a story about creation. Someone asked if the account of Adam and Eve is simply a story, and they may not have literally been the only two humans on earth, as you allowed for in your Easter sermon only at 9 a.m. Now has sin entered all of humanity? If there were others, wouldn't those folks and their offspring have been without sin? I didn't put it on here because reality. This was a question about creation, the, the understanding of creation. And, and, I, and for those who wrote that question, I, I think I misspoke. That was not what I intended. So I will speak to that question. But I want to speak about uh, creation because, to be honest with you, creation is one of uh, the most hotly debated topics, and this is an important phrase I'm about to use, in the conservative, evangelical, Jesus-loving church. It's an important phrase. The conservative, evangelical, Jesus-loving church. That's a nice way of encompassing everybody with all different theological backgrounds who ultimately believe in the foundation ways of Jesus being the only way to get to heaven, etc., right? These are people that you love. When you give, like, oh, my God, you're like-minded with me. And so this group of people, this is the most hotly debated topic. So here's, listen, here's another teaching point. Waterbed, please. Here's another teaching point. And this is super huge, guys. I'm about to rock your, rock your minds with this one. We live in a culture that tries to find ways that we disagree. And that becomes our focus of relationship. I can't be friends with that person because whatever it may be, right? Everything's, oh, do you believe that, right? And so in, perp- in great theological circles, what you say is this. Hey, Let's focus first on where we agree, and that be the foundation of everything we do in our relationship. Then let's debate and talk through some of these pieces we disagree on, and then let's land at the very end again on where we agree so we can walk out in unity. So this morning, what I'm going to do is, as it relates to the creation story, I'm going to name just four things that are foundational starting points. You can put those on the screen for me, Josh. Here we go. Number one, God created the universe out of nothing. Every single Jesus-loving, conservative evangelical believes that God, the God of Israel, right, the God of the Jews, now the God of Christianity, the one true God, monotheistic view of God, 
this God is the one who had all the power to create the universe out of nothing. He took the void, he spoke, and it came into being. Number two, we all agree that God created the universe to show his glory, to reveal his power, to make much of his name. Number three, the universe God created, it was good. The good, that word means perfect, right? It was good. It was perfect. There was nothing broken in it, in its intended original creation order. Number four, any secular theory that denies God as creator, then we deny as unscriptural. So Darwinistic evolution, we stand against that. The, cre- uh, the Big Bang, apart from God initiating the Big Bang, we disagree with that on an evangelical Christian conservative viewpoint. Point, right? That's the places that we agree. But let's talk about the things now that are super fun to debate on that we don't agree on. Number one, does evolution, just at not Darwinistic, but just evolution in general, was it part of God's created intended plan? Because as some people view, they view things evolving over time. Or do we just say God said it was perfect so it doesn't need to evolve? And people debate all day long. Oh, right? In my opinion, oh, that was a yawn, fake yawn. Sorry, sorry, wasn't super clear. Number two, how old is the earth? How old is the earth? You've got your young earth creationist men who are willing to fight you tooth and nail at the earth is between six and 10,000 years old, which then takes into account the dinosaurs and the Neanderthals and all of these things. Some people believe there were millions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Some people literally come in and say, the question around how long have human beings been on the earth? Are Neanderthals actually some sort of subspecies of humanity? Are they own little species over here that are separated and they fall in that 1-1 to 1-2 in the millions of years during the Ice Age we have from science, right? Trying to reconcile all of these pieces and they debate, they debate, they debate all day long. One of the primary pieces people debate is whether the creation story, is it a literal, right here, right here, is creation a literal story? As in like, it's scientific in nature, the order was super intentional of everything that was created, even though the creation story, there's two creation stories, just so you know, there's Genesis 1 creation story, in the Genesis 2 creation story, they're different styles of writing, and they're actually not the exact same order. You can go look at that for yourself, right? But is it a literal thing that's scientific in nature and time is literally like, because Scripture says what one day is like a thousand years, and that's how you de- determine all of this. It's only just several thousand years old, right? And that's a primary way that some people view primarily the young earth creationists demand that because it makes them fit, right? Or is it a figurative story, what I mean by that is a figurative story talks more about intent of the story rather than exactness. Have you ever told a story sometimes where you got all the pieces right, but maybe they weren't exactly in the right order? And maybe you didn't quote exactly what was exactly said in the moment, but the primary gist and the intent of the story to get to the heartbeat of what it's all about all of us have done that. And so the idea of the creation story being figurative is hey, it's a figurative story that. Number one, the primary intent of the story is just to make sure the world knows that God, the God of Israel, the God of creation, is the God who created all things. 
and he is all-powerful. And all the pieces of the story that are in there, of the heavens and the earth and the stars and the moon, right, that all of those things, yes, God created. God then did create humanity. No one else created it. He created humanity. He put them on the earth in his perfect creation. These are literal things. God and all the specifics, maybe not the perfect order, not exactly right, but they were all in the creation story. And then you have thrown some figurative language. Figurative language be along these lines. Were they really in a specific garden that had measurements? Or does the garden just represent all of earth and its perfection? Right? But it's figurative saying they were in a garden, like the whole earth represented the Garden of Eden because all of it was perfect, all of it was beautiful, all of it was inhabited, right? It would all be in time inhabited, right? Was it a figurative story? What figurative picture? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Was it a literal tree in the garden with literal fruit? Or was it just figurative language to speak about the ability that you had there to pluck fruit, excuse me, just pluck sin and choose that, meaning that sin was just a part of the human experience at the time. And the serpent, was it a literal serpent? Or is this representing figurative language to speak to the nature of who the enemy was? Because that's what he is. He's like a serpent. He's sneaky. He's sly. He's trying to kill, steal, and destroy. Figurative language is used all the way throughout Scripture. That's what people say in this argument. Jesus was not literally a vine. He was not literally light. He was not literally a shepherd. And he was not literally a gate. Right? This would be awkward. He was a human being who happened to be a carpenter who was God. It was figurative language to say, he is like this. So the enemy is like this. He's a serpent. He's like, the fruit is, sin is like this, a fruit you can pick from the tree. Here's the deal. Who knows? Right? That's the point. These are all just the argument pieces. If you made, if you pushed me, I'd say I definitely lean more towards the figurative language. To be honest with you, it is a whole lot easier to lead somebody to Jesus and share the nature of the creation story, not having to make them believe in a literal six-day creation. I can say, I don't really think so. I don't really know. I'm more of a figurative here. But what I do know, which is where we land, put those things back up on the screen because we come out of this question. Let's make sure we're leaving this question with the things we all agree upon. God created the universe out of nothing. He is all-powerful, and I will never, ever, ever stray from that. That's where we land. Look at somebody and say, I don't know where, how, how it all took place. And to be honest with you, I don't think it's really important for you coming to Christ. What I will tell you is important is my God is, can be your God, and he's the one who created all things, and he's all-powerful. I believe he created the universe for his glory. He wanted it to be beautiful and right. I believe it was perfect when he created it. And anything, anything that speaks to other than God creating, I just don't agree with. That's where we land, all right? We're just going quick through these things, aren't we? Here we go. Next question. If someone said, how, how do I honor parents if they're not being nice, kind, and loving? So we're getting pulling back a little bit from theology. Super shifting, right? These, super, these are questions. They're super fun. The two primary New Testament scriptures, and these are on the screen, but you know them. You can write them down. The two primary New Testament scriptures that speak to children and parents are Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, and Colossians 3, 20 through 21. In essence, both say the same thing. Here's the common language. You already all know what I'm going to say. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Honor your father and your mother. You know where it's taken from? The Ten Commandments. 
Just looking back to the Ten Commandments. So there's an expectation in Jewish culture here today in the times of Jesus that children would honor and obey their parents. So here are five takeaways, things to know about this. Number one, both sets of verses are speaking, just in context, are speaking to Christian families. Right? So Christian parents, that's why verse 4 says, And fathers, raise up your children in the ways of the Lord. So the understanding would be that there are, this is a Christian family, Christian children, part of a Christian family. Number two, I love this in these verses. We're going to look at this in a second. Children are given a voice. Children are given a voice. Unheard of. Absolutely scandalous and unheard of. In the Roman culture and in the Jewish culture, it was a part of the Roman culture at the time, man, children were not given a voice. They were the unheard in the culture. Didn't have rights. And parents uh, now, parents now are to take them into consideration when teaching, when training, and when parenting. It's an outgrowth of the gospel. Which, which gives voice to those. Listen, have you ever read the gospel and recognize for the first time in a lot of people's lives, Jesus gave them voices? Yeah. Women, slaves, children, powerful, right? It's an outgrowth of the gospel. Long story short, children, you now have a voice. And you can thank Jesus, right? Number three, honor and obedience of children to parents Hear this, it is expected. And the opposite, dishonor and disobedience are both a symptom of disintegrating social culture. We know things are not going well when children stop honoring and stop obeying their parents. It does not go well. But here's the interesting thing about honor and obedience. A child's honor and obedience, hear this, it comes with a promise in Ephesians 6.3 of a spiritual blessing. Obey so it it will go well with you. So children, I don't care how old you are. Honoring and obeying your parents in moments where you don't really want to. Where inside you have other plans for yourselves, but your parents have said this. And you go, I will die to self and I will obey you, honor you, and obey you. The blessing that comes in that moment, I believe, is always the fruit of God's spirit. He'll give you, he'll pour out his love and his joy and his peace, his patience and his kindness and his goodness and his gentleness and his faithfulness and self-control into your life. If things are not going well in your life, children, start honoring and obeying your parents and just see what happens. If it doesn't go well for you in six months, I will give you $1,000. A vintage is money. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm that confident, babe. All right. <clears throat> Parents. Wow. <clears throat> it's really interesting. Paul comes in and he says, hey, wake up. He comes in in Ephesians 6, 3 and says, do not exasperate your children. He comes in Colossians and says, do not provoke your children until they become discouraged. 
You see, specifically in a patriarchal community, you've all studied history in your school. You know in a patriarchal community, if a father says something, you don't have any other option. I don't care if you're the wife. I don't care if you're the child. It doesn't matter who, if you're one of the slaves. Servants doesn't really matter. You have to do it, right? And Paul's coming and saying, dads. Moms, wake up. You can't just do what you want to do and say what you want to say because it exasperates your children. Right? So you can adopt James this. Be quick to listen. Be quick to listen. Here, everybody pay attention. Be quick to listen. Do you want to do a better job of parenting? Then be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. And absolutely, for the love of God, be slow to anger. I don't know about you, but some of you treat your children in ways that you would never want God to treat you. You're not grace-filled. You're not kind. You're not compassionate. You're not long-suffering with them. You're not quick to listen. You are not slow to speak, and you are absolutely quick to anger. And God's saying through Paul, stop it. Don't exasperate them. Don't discourage them. Yes, they need to honor and obey, but you can lead them there, or you can set boundaries, but you do it in a loving, kind, and compassionate way. Don't exasperate them. So children, honor and obedience is expected in God's eyes. Parents, you can't do and act however you want. You just can't. You will be held responsible for your children's exasperation and discouragement before God. However, at the end of the day, our obedience to parents, it stops. We all know this, but I'm going to say it, the boundary of sin. Your primary responsibility is to father God. And if your parents command you to do something that's against your moral ethics... It's against your personal convictions, and don't use that as some lame argument. It's against my convictions to eat broccoli, that kind of stuff, right? Don't do that, right? But you know what I mean. Then you have the right to disobey your parents because your disobedience is an honoring and obeying God the Father, right? So what do we do now with the specific issues you're wrestling with? Well, it's, it's, it starts here. The primary reason for tension between parents and children is because of an inability of either one to figure out how to communicate well. They get like this, they get on your side, it's an us versus them mentality. And I would say if you're the, you're the parent or the child, if you cannot figure out how to go have a difficult, what I would call crucial conversation, if some of you read that book, Crucial Conversation, with, with the other, then maybe you go find wise counsel. Maybe you sit down with a counselor. I mean, I don't know how many times Tiffany, who's a resident counselor here, or Dana, who's sitting over here, has said, now let's talk about the conversation you're going to have with your mom, right? And then you work for like three weeks on like one, getting over your tension and your personal rights to humble yourself, to sit down and say, I love you and I want to honor you, but this is hard for me. And then you create talking points so then you know how to have that conversation that opens up communication. Here's a goal. Be a, be a, choose to be a home where communication is invited rather than shut down, which is usually because you're tired. Okay? All right, here we go. Um, 
Number five is not there. Here we go. Next question. I love this question. Why do pastors? Why do pastors think they have arrived if they lead a mega church? Right? These are the great questions, right? It's super simple. Because of their pride. Right? That's a, that's a, that's a, that is it. But here's the problem about pride. Almost every single mega church pastor I'm friends with, right? I know, I'm not friends with a ton of them, but I've known some over the years. Every single one of them got into ministry with a very pure heart. Even the ones that fail get in with a pure heart of love for Jesus and a pure heart of love for other people. Then all of a sudden, because they're winsome, because of their ability to teach, because of their woo, whatever it may be, all of a sudden people start following them. And all of a sudden, the cultural, the cultural piece of success all of a sudden tackles them and people start telling them, oh my gosh, you're the greatest thing ever. And they begin, they begin to believe the cultural lie that bigger churches are better churches, that wealthier churches are better churches. They begin to believe this cultural lie that smaller churches need to grow to be healthy, right? And so they begin to believe because we're big, we're healthy, and we're great. And all of a sudden people are telling, Alex, you're the best. Like, Alex is the pastor. He's a mega church pastor. You're the best. You're the best. You're the best. You're the best. And people go, no, 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 no. Well, I mean, okay. Well, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I am pretty good, aren't I? I mean, all of a sudden, all of, we can reach this point, and all of a sudden they have this pride that tells them they're better than other people. And here's the point. They are responsible for that. But so are the ones who are building them pedestals and forcing them to it. All megachurch pastors have two people to, that are responsible for it. Themselves and everybody else who just like Jesus. Oh, we praise you. You're amazing. Just do what I want you to do. Right? You're so good and amazing. Just make sure you say what I want you to say on Sunday morning when I give you a lot of money. Right? Just keep on doing what I want you to do because you're great. You're the best. And they get forced up there. You know what Jesus did? He just didn't get on pedestals. He just didn't get on pedestals. Here we go. Here we go. Next one. Next question. Why doesn't the church teach more about uh, on marriage and sex? Uh, because we feel inadequate and not capable to teach on the subjects, right? To come in and say, I'm an expert in sex. Like, huh, right? That's kind of awkward. And so we don't necessarily do that. Or in our marriage, like my relationship with Randall is really great, except when it's not like all of yours. So it feels difficult sometimes to come in and say, we're teaching on marriage because we got it all together. She's like, Mm-mm, we don't, right? And so sometimes that's the reason. So what I'd say is, yes, we need to be speaking more about that. We need to have small groups about that, right? But the person who wrote this question i would love for you to lead a small group in a breakout session on marriage and sex because if you're asking about you have a passion for it and i will release you to do that as long as i like what you have to say all right here we go number six i'm just going to keep on going um how do we christians handle statements of scripture used against us about letting immigrants cross our border illegally by non-christians oh my gosh he's about to go political don't worry i'm not isn't it silly that people have become politics for us? Yes. Right? People have become politics. Immigrants, every single one of them, illegal and legal, are people that Jesus died for on the cross to redeem them from their sins. And he wants them to have a life in the same way he wants all of us to have a life. So here are just three questions to consider. Again, they're not on the screen, but just three things. Number one. Remember, God is not about politics. He is about people. Don't say amen. Don't say amen to these things, okay? Don't say amen to these things. Just listen. 
People who say amen sometimes, they're not necessarily listening to the questions. So here, don't say amen to any of these things. God, it's not about you, Gina. Sorry, that's just in general, okay? God, that was not directed at you. Sorry, that was not my intent. I want you to listen to these. Sorry. You're like, oh my gosh, you're the one saying amen. Steve's talking to her. I'm not. Here we go. Number one, God is not about politics. I love you. God is not about politics. He's about people. God is not about politics. He's about people. We must take the partisan out of our thinking and think Jesus and kingdom of God first. Why? Because all of our political parties will die out and the kingdom of God will last forever. Okay? This person asking the question, I would simply say, if you can't, hear this, this is super huge, this is life-changing for you in all political issues. If you can't reconcile scripture with your political stance then which one wins out for you? If you can't reconcile Scripture, this person's having a hard time reconciling Scripture on immigration with their political stance. So if you can't reconcile Scripture with your political stance, I don't care what stance it is and what issue it is, then which one wins out for you? Remember, you are a kingdom people. You are not a politically partisan people in the eyes of God. Number three, immigration, like so many many other issues, it's not a clear black and white issue. God loves immigrants, and God doesn't love lawlessness, right? God loves immigrants. He loves illegal immigrants. He is 100% for them, but he's against lawlessness. I have no idea how to fix immigration. I'm not going to sit up here and say, well, they just do this, right? Those people aren't ever helpful. But I need to be able to stand before God and reconcile my political stance with my reading of Scripture. I've got to be able to do that. And I would encourage you, if you haven't read, let me, here, this, is my, this is the last thing I'll say about it. Stop getting on a platform and yelling at people unless you've actually read the alternative view and understand why people sit over here. That's just being Christ-like. It's being called loving, and it's called being kind. If you can't make, in my world, I don't argue a point unless I can equally argue the other one. In that point, I stay silent until I actually understand, as well as I can, the full picture of things. If I can't argue both points because I understand them so well, then I really don't want to argue one. Okay. All right. It's night. We're not, not going to have ministry time today. I'm just going to keep on going. You okay with that? Sorry. So if you need ministry, who are the ministry teams today? Okay, right here and right there. I'll stand up real quick. This is going to be super awkward. This is just family time, right? Okay. So after church, we're going to bring the lights down here in like one minute. And if you need prayer, you can go to them. Here are our offering baskets. Everybody give thousands of dollars today and help us, right? Because I'm about to lose my job from teaching on all this. Here we go. Here we go. I'm just going to, we know people in heaven. We know friends and family in heaven. I sure hope so. Scripture's silent. We don't know. But we know our friends and family in heaven. All we know is we won't be married or given in marriage in heaven according to Scripture. But will we know family? I sure hope so. I think we will. I think we will because we'll talk about tribes and tongues coming together and worshiping God. Tribes and tongues represent families coming together. Scripture says in Hebrews, whether it's figurative or literal, I don't know. I hope it's literal. There's a great cloud of witnesses in heaven who are cheering us on and being obedient and living by faith. Man, whew. 
silly. I really hope my mom, I hope her dad's cheering us on. I hope they're cheering us on. I hope they know at least an idea of what's going on. Do I know for sure that they are? I don't know, but I sure hope so. Right? And I think that it'd be awesome, and so probably they do. Right? Uh, the person is cremated. How is the body resurrected at the end? Simple. From dust we remain, from dust we will return, and if he can create, he can recreate like this. The primary, listen, this is super important. This is the last thing I'll say. I'm not going to get the other question I had because it's way too long, but it's this. The most important part of your being is your soul, your mind, your will, and emotions, because that's the part that lasts forever, not the physical body. He will give you a new body here. Old body here. How many of you want your old body when you get to heaven? Nobody raised their hand, right? New body. So he just, he, he, the dust we were made, the dust we will return, and he can recreate as he wants. Okay? All right, take a deep breath. Ah, I know I went super fast. So in all of these, I will give you some resources. I don't have them ready yet, so sometime soon. I'll put a resource list together of all of these things with my attempt to try to give you teaching points on both sides, right, that are equal in nature. So a lot of our reform stuff comes from a guy named Wayne Grudem. Everybody heard of Wayne Grudem? I'm sure Alex probably has. Wayne Grudem, he wrote this book called Systematic Theology. You can buy it anywhere. He is 100% reformed in his theology. He is spirit-filled. It's beautiful, right? And he lands over here in the complementarian side and all these pieces, right? And I can, there's a guy named um, Ogden. Uh, what's his name? Do you know what his name is? Like, Ogden, I think it was, I'll, I'll find it for you. Anyway, another systematic theology book over here, more in the traditional Wesleyan side. They're buddies, and they get along super great, so it's super fun, and we can too. All right, let me pray for us. Jesus, and then Scott, to get done, you can just put the music up and bring the lights down. So Jesus, we thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for Q&A. I thank you, Father God, that these moments never stress you out, because in all of them, you just go, but I'm the Lord. But I'm the Lord. And it's my spirit of unity that unites people even in their differences. I thank you that you had um, Simon the terrorist who was part of one of your disciples and his arch enemy on paper, Matthew the tax collector. And you thought they were perfect to unite together and be a team for the purpose of your kingdom. If they can work together, then Jesus, anybody else can. And I pray, God, would you make us awesome Lord, at being resolute in our personal convictions and where we land as well-informed and well-educated people on both sides, but with the attempt to always pursue relationship and pursue unity. God, I, could, I would just love for that to be a marker of vintage in all the other churches around us. Lord, we love you. We pray this in your name. Everybody said... Amen and amen. All right. Well, it's already 10, 11.24. They're really angry at me, I'm sure, back there. So please run and go grab your kids. Um, offering baskets are here. If you're a first-time guest, welcome. There's a desk out here that somebody would love to greet you, give you a gift. We have offering boxes on the way out also. You guys have a great week. I love you, and we will see you soon.